interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now, here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Jim Russ. And lots of interesting things going on. Now people are worried about the security of Bluetooth, whether people can hack into your phone by, you know, doing something nefarious with Bluetooth mm-hmm. connections. I'll talk about that. They, it was a big feature at the DEF CON conference, and, uh, and so I'll uh, just tell you how you can safely operate with Bluetooth. I also learned something interesting this week, that Chromebooks have an expiration date on, on how much support they'll get from Google. Oh, really? And you can't tell what the expiration date is. Oh, that's kind of bogus. Yeah, so it's possible you, you could buy a Chromebook on sale, and it's only a year from expiration, and you don't even know it, and it's not anywhere on the Chromebook itself. You've got to look it up, and I'll tell you how to look that up. Before you get that budget Chromebook, that the Chromebook, rather useful. That that's right. Now um, NASA is really getting excited about nuclear propulsion for going into, into outer space. Hmm. So uh, all the the big three countries, Russia, China, and the U.S. are working on nuclear propulsion. And I'll talk about why that seems to be so so important. And in profiles in IT, it's William Hewlett and David Packard of Hewlett Packard. And of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. We got an email from Al in Southern Maryland. Hello, Tech Talk. Greetings from Southern Maryland. I enjoy your show, and you've answered my questions before. Now I have one that seems to be a serious problem. I'm running on a Dell computer running Windows 7. Whoops, that's uh, already expired. But uh, <laughs> suddenly upon boot up, Windows 7 will, will not start up. It ends up giving me a screen that says was unable to start. It gave me two options, run a repair attempt or start Windows normally. I chose normally and it started correctly. Next time it happened again, it took multiple tries and finally it started normally again. The next time it came up again, uh, I, I went ahead and I ran the repair option and then it ended up starting correctly. So I've tried booting again and again and again, and it always seems to fail a few times before it finally clack, clicks on. Uh, is my computer dying? I've got CC Cleaner on the system. I don't, don't know if that will help. I need your advice. Thanks for a great show and for helping listeners by sharing your expertise. Al in Southern Maryland. Well, Al, since your boot up occurs intermittently, it means it's not a configuration error. It means, you know, it's actually finding the disk drive, so you don't have a configuration problem where it's looking in the wrong disk for for boot up. The fact that it's intermittent would would actually lead me to believe that you've got some a bad sector in your hard drive and it's having trouble reading the information from that sector and it goes back and reads it and reads it, rereads it and finally it can read it. And so it looks to me like you have a um you know an eminent hard drive failure. Mm. So I would immediately back up your files. Leave it on. Don't turn it off. Back up your files. Now, you can either back them up to an external hard drive, just plug it into the USB port, or what I do, I back up all my stuff to Carbonite. It's on the cloud. Uh, Carbonite's, uh, you know, you have to pay for that a monthly fee, but then if you, if you buy a um, an external hard drive, it'll probably cost you $100 or so. But you need to immediately back up your files because you could lose those files if it if it won't boot up although you could recover them by using, uh, using other techniques by from another computer but you just don't want to tinker with that now 
once you've backed up your files, you can start looking at what the problems are. Now, it, it turns out that <clears throat> that um, that Windows has a program called Check Disk, C H K D S K, and and it and it but basically it checks the disk and it fixes any kind of uh, file errors. It also tries to recover data from bad sectors, and if it and if it can't recover the data from the bad sector, tries to move the data to another sector. And so you can, but you have to run that through the, um, as a, through the, uh, what they call the command prompt. So what you want to do is you want to type in the search box CMD, and then a little window will come up. Right click on that window and say open as administrator. You have to open, you have to run it as administrative rights, otherwise it won't go. And then you can do check disk chkdsk slash f. And then slash F is actually, slash F then says if you find an error, fix it. So that, that's a pretty good utility, and that's built right into, uh, right into Windows 7. Actually, it's built into all the versions of Windows. Now, now, you could replace your hard drive. Now, one thing that you could do, you could actually take your current entire hard drive, and you could, and you could basically um, make an image of it, and then... Just transfer that image to a new hard drive. So you could put you could put a new hard drive. You can install a second hard drive in your computer, and then there is a program, a free program that's really nice, Macrium Reflect, M-A-C-R-I-U-M Reflect. It's a free program, and it offers external backup capacity. So you can basically make a clone of your entire uh, hard drive, and then you can copy that clone onto a new hard drive. Now you have a choice. You could either Put the new hard drive in your computer right out of the bat, and you could then um, just clone it right there, and then you just boot up on that other hard drive. Or you could make a clone to an external hard drive, and then you could copy that clone to the new hard drive in your in your computer. Um, either way, that would be a, a good way to go. You, you, do, that, you do that after after check disk. Um, uh, but uh, I would certainly act on that, and and I'd also consider maybe upgrading to Windows 10 um, from Windows 7 because they've stopped Microsoft to stop giving security updates on Windows 7. We got an email from Doug in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Dear Doctor Shirts and Jim, I need your insight on the Apple SE cell phone and the ancillary battery pack. Recently, I heard that you have your Apple cell phone with an external battery pack, which is intended to augment your internal battery supply. But you know, I was reading that um, that it's not good to leave your bat your phone plugged in all the time, and so maybe I should keep the battery pack off and just charge it up and use it as as a backup battery whenever my whenever my cell phone goes down. Uh, what do you think about that? Well, uh, actually, um, Doug, I leave my battery pack on at all times because I'm such a big user that both my battery pack and my cell phone discharge every day. Now, quite yeah. sig- quite significantly. It is true that you that if you want your battery to last a long time, you want to have it discharged, you know, periodically. You don't want to keep it always at 90% charged. So what they're saying is that if you don't use your phone much and you leave it plugged in all the time and it's always like 90% or 100% charged and it never goes down to, say, 20%, that will affect your battery life. So, But if you're just using your phone, it just... You could just uh, you could just occasionally skip a recharge. Don't don't plug it in, and, and both the battery pack and the uh, and and the phone will go down. I like this battery pack. It's an Apple battery pack, so they they have very good power management. They, they 
they when you charge it up, it charges your phone first, and then it charges the battery pack. And then when you're discharging it, it discharges the battery pack first, and then it discharges the phone. So it's it's very, you don't have to do anything, it, and it's the same connector. It's very very convenient, and um, I I use it all the time, especially on travel. How do you manage the discharge thing? Do you, you let yours run all the way down every so often, or what do you? Yeah, do? I, well, it just naturally happens. I'm a big user, so by the end of the day, it's down to maybe thirty okay. percent automatically. <clears throat> so I don't really do anything. Other than live your life. Other than live my life, yeah. And it just it turns out that my life is just perfect for discharging batteries. <laughs> just it, it works out very. But thirty percent is enough. I mean, you don't have to run it almost all the way down to you zero. Don't, you, you, don't, you don't have to run it all the way to zero. I, occasionally, when I'm on travel, it'll run to zero. Mm-hmm. Especially when I'm on travel, I'm taking pictures because the camera right. in the phone just just sucks power. It does, doesn't it? It sucks power. So if I'm out taking a lot of pictures when I'm traveling, I'll tell you the phone just drops way down. So it it, it does go down to zero occasionally, but I try to avoid that. We got an email from Jeannie in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Dear Tech Talk, I've got a straight talk smartphone, and I have a question about the amount of data it's using. I always buy the $45 card that offers 25 gigabits of data. Several days before the month is over. See, this is a this Smart Talk plan is from Walmart, and you and it's prepaid, and you can pick either a Verizon network or an ATT network, and you and you pick what it is. And so, for that phone, she's paying forty five dollars a month and getting twenty five gigs of data, which is actually a pretty good deal. That's and not it's a bad be- deal. It's better than you're going to get from Verizon or ATT. So I, I think it's a it, it, it's smart to go to Walmart because they're just reselling the networks at a good price. Mm-hmm. So she says, I absolutely hate it when they switch to a slower speed because what it is, they don't cut your data off, but when you hit the 25 gigabyte cap, it slows it down to very, very slow connection. So maybe it's good for email, but not for surfing the web. Mm-hmm. Now, I heard there was an app that could help me avoid the data cap on Straight Talk, on the Straight Talk plan. My friend told me there is one, but I can't find it, and I've searched the Google Play Store everywhere, and I can't find it. I think he just may be saying that to pull me to pull my leg. Am I right, or is it really an app that will do this, Genie, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania? Well, Genie, there are no legitimate apps that will override the data cap on your Straight Talk plan. There are third-party apps that claim to do this, but they really don't work. And what more typically they're used for is to put malware on your phone. Uh, the reason they're not available on the official Google Play Store is because they don't work, and they're ridden with malware. So don't use that. Right. There is no free lunch. There is no free lunch on the deal. But there are a few things you can do to minimize your daily daily monthly usage. For one thing, on some mobile web browsers, you can reduce the quality of the image, which also reduces the file size. So you can go into the options of your mobile web browser and see if you can, you know, download lower quality images. That will save you quite a bit of bandwidth. Secondly, you could check a list of installed apps. Uh, and you're, there's a... Uh, and you can and you can look at the power management section of your phone. And it will tell you how much how much uh, data each of those apps is using. And and if some of them are just talking in the background, you don't use them. Just you know disable them or or delete them. Um, now there's a fantastic uh, program called My Data Manager, which will analyze your phone's data usage and it'll help you figure out exactly what you need to do to improve it. You can also disable these push notifications. You know, like Facebook loves to push a notification yeah. anytime anybody does anything. Well, that takes a lot of data. You can disable push notifications on all your social media because you really don't have to know the second that somebody posts a like. 
you could you could probably wait until you got home and were on Wi-Fi to check that. Now, here's the biggest thing that you can do. Hook up to every available Wi-Fi connection. Because when you're on Wi-Fi, you're not using your phone's data plan. It's you're using the data plan of the of the Wi-Fi network you're on. And most of those are, uh, you know, d don't really have a cap. And so I think if you do these few things, you can probably bring your usage down. But because 25 gigabytes, is a that's a lot of data to use in a month. Um, I mean, I use... And I use my phone a lot. I, I use about six or seven megabytes of data just on my phone each month. But I don't watch videos. So I'm guessing, Jeannie, that you're watching some videos. So I would recommend uh, if you watch videos, do it when you're on Wi-Fi. Mm -hmm. uh, we got an email from Sandeep in New York City. Dear Doc and Jim, I made a stupid mistake, and I'm hoping you can help me out. I'm not a professional photographer or anything. But I do love taking pictures. I take a lot of them. I've got a Canon PowerShot camera. I've got two SD cards. I swap them in and out. When one fills up, I swap in the I swap in a new one, and, I, and that's how I actually that's how I actually you know manage my photos. But what happened is I actually I actually got the two cards mixed up, and I put in the card with all my pictures, thinking that it was the blank card, and I formatted it. <laughs> and now it wiped out a ton of pictures Oops. that I really want to keep. Is there any way I can get them back? Probably not, right? Sandeep, no, no, he can get them back. Oh, good. No problem. Okay, if all you did was format the card without using it again, you can most likely get them all back. If you've used the the um, if you've used the 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 drive again, the SD card again, you you might have copied pictures onto it and overwritten other pictures. But if you copied no files onto it, all you've changed is the is the is the formatting information, and the actual files are untouched. Now, a fantastic free program I've talked about before is Recuva, R-E-C-U-V-A. It'll scan your internal external hard drive, USB thumb drive, or memory card from your camera or smartphone and give you the option to undelete any files that it finds. Recover will scan your memory card and compile an inventory of all files that have not been overwritten with new files since the card was formatted. I got a feeling that since you had, didn't use that card much, you'll, you'll, you'll find most of your photos. You can go to... You can here's a link to recover. It's at oldergeeks.com/downloads, and um, and you can download it there for free. Now this is actually what what I call you go to the site and if you like the program, they're saying, well, you know, you could you could give us a donation of like you know a little bit, and I think it's a great program. It's and I think it'll fix your problems. Um, we got an email from Arnie in Colorado Springs. Hi, Doctor Shirts. When I'm using Ookla speed test for my Internet connection speed, Ookla allows me to change servers. And just because one server is closer than another, it will choose, even though one is closer than another, it will always choose the fastest server. There are more than 30 servers of various locations in Colorado listed. My provider is Comcast, and even though Ookla goes to the fastest connection, is that the connection that my iPad goes to? Or does the connection go to Comcast Infinity or the ISP? Great show with lots of inform information, Arnie in Colorado Springs. Well, Arnie, uh, when you do these speed tests, all the data passes through your ISP, so it all goes through the servers on your Comcast servers. What you're selecting is the server you're downloading the files from. So if you pick a, <clears throat> a particular server to do the speed test from, you want a, a server that's that will download files faster than your Internet connection. So you're not looking at the download speed of the server itself. You're looking at your Internet connection. So you pick the fastest server you can get, 
and it will go through your Comcast ISP and then then to you. And so, but you're all and so you're basically testing the the you know the the total path from the other server to your ISP server, then to your device at your house. We got an email from Stu in Kilmarnock. Dear Doc and Jim. Is Stu one of your new best friends? Oh, yeah. We he hear is. from him all the time. Yeah, Stu, Stu is a very nice boat. And, <laughs> and, and this is the thing, Jim. Stu is a boat? No, Stu owns a boat. Oh, very, Stu owns a boat. And what I've discovered is the best boat you can have is a boat is, owned by someone else. Exactly right. <laughs> That's true. You don't have to pay for it. That's right. That's perfect. Dear Doc and Jim, I'd like to buy a satellite phone for use on my boat in case of emergency. I mean, Stu's got a big boat. He something. He goes out into into blue waters. What are some good options? Love the podcast, Stu and Kilmarnock. Well, Stu, I think uh, satellite phones are not bad. You've got ship-to-shore radio, but satellite phones... She you got a ship-to-shore, she. Yeah, you satellite phones are not too bad, but you've got to have the right coverage. Okay, ah. the right coverage with the satellite. So let me give you three of the networks you've got. Inmarsat. Now, Inmarsat satellites, they work best if you are between the 50th degree latitudes. You know, you go up 50 degrees and south 50 degrees. The 50 degree north and south latitudes. You need to check your lawn and latch, eh? Yeah, because in other words, it doesn't cover the north and south pole. Ah. And the closer you get to the equator, the better the coverage is on on Inmarsat. Now, the reason is, is that their satellites are cir- circulating, their geosynchronous circulating around the equator. Is there triangu- triangulation going That's on, right. too? Shane? Well, there is some triangulation, <laughs> and they have th- awesome. only three satellites, and so the further uh. you are away from the uh, equator, the, the weaker the signal, so you can just go up to the plus or minus 50 degrees to the north and south latitude. Now, that would be, that's a, many sailors use that because that covers most of the waters there where you know where 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 sailors sail because you, you stay away from the poles which is cold then you've got iridium <laughs> you got the iridium system iridium is global coverage it includes even the poles huh. it has not three satellites but 66 Whoa! satellites they are in low earth orbit and they're just and so there's always an iridium satellite somewhere to be found however uh, if you have a long talk on an Iridium one, because one satellite drifts in and another one drifts out, so you can't talk more than about 10 minutes because you got to shift satellites. Whereas in the case of Inmarsat, you don't, you're not shifting so satellites. Do you all actually the time. have to end the call and start again because you've changed? It, it doesn't automatically hand it, off. It doesn't hand off. That's one of the little disadvantages. Of. Then you've got Global Star. It's limited to sort of the North American area. They only have 40 satellites. They're in, they're in low Earth orbit. It's not a global system, even though they call it Global Star. <laughs> it's not global. They only have 40. So those are the three. So still, partial Global Star. So here are your three phone options. Using the three networks, you've got Iridium Extreme 9375. That's a satellite phone that has integrated GPS as well as an SOS button. That's really if something's going bad on your boat. You just want to hit that button. <laughs> you, you don't want to. Have, you don't want to have to be dialing. You just want to hit the big the big red button. You mean nine one one doesn't that, work out at sea? No, no. That out at sea, it's not nine one. It's called SOS. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and and this uh, this Iridium Extreme ninety five seventy works works globally. Now the nice thing is it's got GPS, and there and it leaves a, a GPS breadcrumb trail, so people can track you and they can see as you're moving around the seas in your in your travels, they can see where you've been. So the Iridium system it has got a lot of safety features. Now it lets you send and receive text messages, email. You can get voicemail. 
Uh, you can use it as a mobile hotspot. But here's the deal. The data speed is only 2.4 kilobits per second. Hmm. So really, you need to send short messages because the, it's really not made for, you know, for major Internet connection. Battery lasts about four hours. Now, the phone costs $1,157. Now, I used to <laughs> think, I used to think that was expensive until, until I, the iPhone's $1,000. So, right. so it costs about as much as an iPhone X. Not, not bad. Now, if you, the monthly plan, you want to get a monthly Wave Runner plan, you get 90 minutes a month for $100, 90 minutes of talk for $100, and any additional minutes, $1.54. So that would be one option for you if you want to really have a global coverage of Iridium. Now, if you're going to go to Inmarsat, you've got the Inmarsat's iSat Phone 2. Now, that's rugged. It's splash-resistant. It's a satellite phone great for marine use. In fact, they designed it for marine use. Inmarsat really views themselves as a network for boaters. So this particular one is waterproof. It's really made for boaters. Now, the Instaphone 2, it's got dust-resistant, shock-resistant, splash-resistant. It withstands 90% humidity. The battery life is good for about 8 hours of talk time and 160 hours in standby. The phone has voicemail, text messaging, email messaging. It also has built-in GPS and an emergency button to send a distress text to a prearranged number at your location. Now the in, now that phone costs six hundred and thirty-four dollars, so it's a little bit cheaper. And but if you want to get the Insta Instaphone mid plan, it costs about sixty-five dollars a month for thirty minutes, with extra minutes at a dollar five. And then the final one is Global Star. So if you're only sailing around where the Global Star network uh, covers, that's going to be centered around North America. Uh, the Global Star GPS 1700 is low spot, low, lower priced. Uh, it uh, the thing is the Global Star is more of a voice kind of phone. It doesn't send or receive SMS messages. There's no GPS, um, but it has very good voice quality because those 40 satellites are connected to cell phone ground stations. So it's a very good voice phone. And so it's got also good voicemail. The Global Star Orbit, you get 200-minute plan for around $100 a month with $0.99 cents, uh, for each additional minute. That's around $500 on Amazon. But this Global Star, I think, is less of an emergency phone and more just like a, a phone to talk. So... I think you're either going to want to go with the iSat Phone 2 or the Iridium Extreme 9517. So uh, the – I had a question, and it's already gone. Wow. Um, So uh, I guess the the point – people may be saying, well, why do you need a a satellite phone at at sea? Well, there's no cell towers out there. There there are no cell towers out there. I mean, there there is ship-to-shore radio, Mm -hmm. but – when you're out in the middle of the ocean, for ship-to-shore radio to work, you, it's got to bounce off the ionosphere, so the 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 atmospherics have to be right to right. you know to you know for that to work. The, uh, <clears throat> ship-to-shore radio is basically just it's it's a long wire radio. It's basically yeah it's, yeah basically you use your mast as as as, a, as basically a, um, a you know a half dipole antenna using the uh, using the ocean as the ground plane. Mm-hmm. And yeah and so you you basically it's it's, it's just basically a, a ham radio. We got an email from Yaul Sarkas in San Diego. Dear Richard, hello. How are you? Love Love the show. I've been listening for a few years religiously. You've got a lot of great information. I have two questions. First, my church would like to broadcast or stream 
our mass every Sunday. I don't have the time to sit there and start up the recording and then load it to YouTube or Facebook. Is there an IP camera that we can purchase and do this automatically huh. on, any, on any given time without buying or babysitting it and mounting it and setting it up and streaming it? Then my second question is, um, I've got a Google Wi-Fi at home and love it. The only problem is it's on a different network than, than I have on my wired network. And my wired network has its own uh, firewall and router. And these have two different network names, and I can't see through the router, so I can't stream video to my TV because they're on different networks. Can I combine them into one network so they can see each other and work together? Uh, thanks for taking these questions on the show. Well, let's talk about your Wi-Fi first. You can cascade two routers. What you have to do is plug your wired network into the cable router and the Google Wi-Fi into the same Ethernet switch as the cable router. So you, you just basically are cascading the two routers, and you can merge them into one network by plugging the wire network into the into Google Wi-Fi. When both of them, when you cascade, you're going through two firewalls, and you're going through two network address translation servers, NAT servers, which which slow things down a little bit. But in your case, I don't think it'll make much difference. I've I've cascaded two routers before quite easily. They're all in one network. They work up. They work perfectly. Now the only issue is that if you want to say open a port to a particular device that's on, um, say, the second firewall, you're going to have to open the port in both firewalls at the same time. And in one case, you're going to have to forward the port. The next page, you'll have to forward the port to the, to, the, uh, to the location of the second router and then forward the second router's port to the device itself. So you, it's a little bit more configuration if you're doing port forwarding. Other than that, you can put them together without any problem at all. Now, let's talk about your church thing. Now, as for as for your church, the easiest way you could use Periscope or Facebook Live. Yeah. You know, it's quick and dirty. You need to be mindful that most church music is copyrighted. Oh, that's a good point. And broadcasting it uh, is outside of the fair use carve out. Now, this gives a simple. Now, and so <clears throat> you may be breaking some copyright laws when you do this, but you know, if it's if it's for the church, you could just I don't know. I don't know what would happen with that. <laughs> It probably, well, I don't know. That's a good question. You, they, you could probably get permission. I would say the church could get permission because they're not making money on the broadcast. Now, this is a simple, single angle of view. You simply employ a wireless mic for everyone who speaks because good sound is more important than good video. You've got to have good sound. So you want everybody who speaks needs a wireless mic because if you expect the pickup to come on your uh, on your Periscope or Facebook feed from your device is going to be too far away, so you want a wireless mic set up. You plug the mics directly into the camera or that you're using. Uh, you could use an iPad for, for streaming video. That would be okay. Now, there's also a turnkey operation for streaming services for churches called DaCast. Now, DaCast offers a well-rounded, comprehensive service at competitive price. Smaller churches will gravitate to the starter plan, but will receive the same great features as larger churches, larger churches on the premium plan. Now, this is actually a pretty good deal. The starter plan is $19 a month and includes 100 gigabytes of bandwidth and 20 gigabytes of storage. The pro plan is $165 a month, and the premium plan is $390 a month. So I'd suggest you take a look at the church and maybe go for this starter plan because they have a lot of features that make it very easy to, you know, to stream and store 
your church services. Listen, we and love you. I wonder. I, I, yes. I wonder if when you do that, if you if they get around some of the copyright, I wonder if what if that's what some of the money is all about that you're paying for that. If that I, helps to. I don't. Th- I don't think they're getting around copyright there. Oh but what they're doing, they're storing it on their own, the, on their own storage, rather than uploading it to YouTube. Yes. If you upload it to YouTube, they'll block the audio because they've yes. got algorithms that detect copyrighted music. SoundCloud operates the same way. If you put together something that's got a piece of licensed music in it, it'll figure it out as well. It'll figure it out. And so what it is is that to to get around this, you're basically renting your own storage, storing your own video, and then. Nobody except but the, the man is, but still the a man violation upstairs of, knows what uh, you're doing. The man upstairs knows you're doing, knows but, what you're doing. But you're still violating copyright rules, yeah, regardless yeah. as to which method you're using. You're still violating the copyright rules, but you're getting around it. So I don't know if it's for church. Maybe it's okay. I'm wonder, not. I'm not really too certain about I think I need to look that. into the legal precedent here while oh, during the course of next week. Yes, I think we're going to have to do that. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as fast as we can. It's Saturday morning, and you're listening to Tech Talk Radio, heard on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD2, 103.9 FM HD2, on the web at stratford.edu and federalnewsnetwork.com. You can watch us do the program by downloading the Periscope app to your device and following us at W. FED Tech Talk. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. And now it is time for... Profiles in IT. Somebody must have talked yes, to him. Thank he, you, he Mr. Thank you, Mr. Big Voice. Yeah. Today we're going to talk about William Reddington Hewlett and David Packard. Oh, of Hewlett and Packard fame? Yes. I'm smart, aren't I? Bill Hewlett and Dave Packard founded Silicon Valley in Hewlett's garage. A coin toss between the two made the name of the company Hewlett Packard instead of Packard Hewlett. (laughs) It works a lot better. We're we're used to it. Mm -hmm. Now, the company's first plant quote, unquote, was a garage in Palo Alto, and the initial capital investment was $538. Wow. Hewlett-Packard's first product was an innovative audio oscillator. An oscillator produces like a a tone. like It's a sine wave. It produces a tone, like, 
and you can tune it to different frequencies. It was an innovative audio oscillator based on the newly developed principle of negative You mean feedback. something like this? Yes. Yes, and this was based on the principle of negative feedback. Now, you you respond well to negative feedback, don't you, Jim? Oh, constantly. That's all I get, so I better respond. (laughs) And this is newly developed. The Walt Walt Disney Company purchased the first eight of these units for $71.50 for use in the 1940 film Fantasia. Really? Yeah, now that's a piece of trivia that, you know, not many people know about. And you found out about it here on Tech Talk. That's right. Now, David Packard, let's, let's look at Dave Packard first. David Packard was born September 7th, 1912 in Pueblo, Colorado. He attended Stanford University and received a Bachelor of Arts in 1934 and a Master of Science in Electrical Engineering in 1939. Packard's interest in electricity and science attracted him to the field of radio engineering. Mm-hmm. He was the son of a lawyer. Now, he came to Stanford in part because he read a textbook on radio engineering that was written by a professor called Professor Terman. He was, a, he was actually the professor at Stanford who is credited with, uh, you know, with, um, with stimulating the sort of the development of uh, Silicon Valley enterprises. Packard is interesting enough. He played football at Stratford. And in 1958, he was selected for Sports Illustrated's Silver Anniversary All-American Team. That's pretty impressive. <laughs> From 1936 to 1938, Packard was an engineer with GE in Schenectady, New York. In 38, he returned to Palo Alto. And the following year, he formed HP with his, with his good friend, uh, uh, William Hewlett. Packard served as a partner for the company from its founding in 1939 until it was incorporated in 1947. So they went from 39 to 47 as just a partnership. They didn't even form a corporation. Mm. This is long before the dot-com frenzy. You can see this. I mean, these guys are way before the... Yeah, the it, curve but here. the whole Silicon Valley built up around Hewlett Packard because HP was the largest employer in Silicon Valley, and all and that generated all of the other entrepreneurial activities. In '47, he became president of Hewlett Packard, and he held that post until '64, when he was elected chairman of the board and chief executive officer. Packard left the company in '69 to become U.S. Deputy Secretary of Defense for the first Nixon administration. How about that? Didn't know that either. When he returned to California, he was re-elected chairman of the board of HP. Packard has been president and chairman of the David and Lucille Packard Foundation since '64. And he's still with us? No, he died. Oh, he died. He died. Uh, he died at 83. Uh, he, uh, he, both Packard and uh, Hewlett were very uh, gave to charity. They mm-hmm. really they they spent and devoted much of their life uh, once they collected their wealth to charitable events. Now let's look at William Reddington Hewlett. William Reddington Hewlett was born May 20th, 1913 in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where his father served on the faculty of the university's medical school. Bill was admitted to Stanford in 1930 and received his Bachelor of Science in Electrical Engineering in 1934. Hewlett studied under and was mentored by Frederick Terman, who was in large part responsible for the development of Silicon Valley. He basically mentored many of the initial entrepreneurs within our, with, who started companies in Silicon Valley. Hewlett received his MSEE from MIT in 1936, but then returned to Stanford to continue his education. Hewlett and his fellow student and close friend David Packard, with Terman's encouragement, 
formed Hewlett-Packard in 1939. Now, uh, Hewlett set up the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation in 1966. This foundation now ranks as one of the largest. Hewlett and Packard oversaw a company with an enviable management uh, style. They managed a company with a new set of operating principles that was intensely personal, and it came to redefine much of American corporate life and culture. They introduced profit sharing, employee stock options, flexible hours, and health insurance. They tended to view their employees as the primary value of the company, the brain power of the company. They didn't treat them just as, uh, just as furniture to be moved around. They used a walking around style. They wanted to find out what was going on. They talked to people. What I call MBWA, Management by Walking About. That's right. Which is really a good idea. <laughs> this became known as the HP way. Mm-hmm. And the HP way of management in the end, was propagated throughout many of the Silicon Valley companies. And uh, they were quite innovative in their time, both for the way they developed uh, new technologies, the way they innovated, as, as well as the way they treated people. They both made lots of money, but they never were motivated by money. They, they said they both said they loved engineering and money just came along. That's a good way to make money. Yeah. Is to not have it as your primary focus. They, they said money just came along. They almost immediately, once they became very wealthy, set up charitable foundations and they donated to charities all over California. These two guys were really nice guys who made a difference. And That's I good. you know, and so I always have a good feeling about Hewlett Packard. I hate the way it's evolved over the time with all of the board. You know, after they were gone, then there were all kinds of board struggles and Hewlett Packard maybe is changing its culture recently, but mm-hmm. they're certainly back a core to the but, HP way? Well, I don't know whether they're going back to the HP way. They're going they're they're evolving, you know, because they've merged and they've they've merged with Compact and mm-hmm. they've a lot of other board uh, shenanigans going on there at HP, but uh, I hope they can reclaim their roots and go back to the HP way because it certainly was a good way to go. Now, I wanted to spend a little time talking about the HP way because these are concepts and techniques that are applicable today, are applicable, well, applicable sh- across the board. Applicable and something we probably should go back to. Yeah. It, uh, we've gotten away from this. It, it actually was a decentralized system uh, of management that became known as the HP way. The essence of the idea, which was radical at the time, was that the employee's brain power was the most important resource. Mm-hmm. Not the buildings, not the intellectual property, not the patents. Not the it, sign on the outside. Yeah, it was the employee's brain power was the most important resource. Uh, they, they were one of the first companies to set up an all-company profit-sharing plan. They gave shares to all employees, among the first to offer tuition assistance, flex time, job sharing. Today, the behavior of the two founders, Hewlett and Packard, remain a benchmark for all business. And these two guys were just two engineers who were just two nice guys. And keep in mind, this was in the 1930s when this was That's right. That's right. Okay. This isn't like yesterday. Now, these are the core elements of the HP way. One, we have trust and respect for all individuals. We approach each situation with the belief that people want to do a good job and will do so given the proper tools and support. We attract highly capable and diverse and innovative people and recognize their efforts and contributions to the company. I mean, one small thing about this, we respect all, in, all individuals. 
They refused to lock up the tools. They had very expensive tools there in all their shops, mm -hmm. and many companies would lock them up so nobody would sure. walk off with them. They no. trusted the employees. They trusted them. They didn't lock up anything. They didn't look over anybody's shoulder. And, you know, the, the tools didn't disappear. Of course not. Okay. Number two, we focus on high level of achievement and contributions. Our customers expect HP products and services to be of the highest quality and to provide lasting value. To achieve this, all HP people, especially managers, must be leaders who generate enthusiasm and respond with extra effort to customers' needs. Number three, we conduct our business with uncompromising integrity. Mm -hmm. We expect these people to be open and honest in their dealings to earn the trust and loyalty of others. People at every level are expected to adhere to the highest standards of business, that business ethics and understand anything less is unacceptable. We achieve our common objectives through teamwork. What a concept. Yeah, we recognize that it's only through effective cooperation within and among organizations that we can achieve our goals. Our commitment is to work as a worldwide team to fulfill the expectations of our customers. Finally, we encourage flexibility and innovation. We create an inclusive work environment that supports the diversity of our people and stimulates innovation. We strive for overall objectives which are clearly stated and agreed upon and allow people the flexibility in working toward goals in ways that they help determine are the best for the organization. Those are the five core tenets of the HP way, and those core tenets basically influenced much of the development and the management style of Silicon Valley countries. Bill Hewlett and Dave Packard, they were the beginners and the innovators of Silicon Valley, both from a management point of view as well as from a technology point of view. You know, I mean, this doesn't just apply to technology companies. This, this should apply to every business in America. That's right. You know? Don't if you, you think? That's right. I, if you want to find out the HP way, I took this directly from HP material. Just Google HP way. You'll get loads and loads of sites all about the HP way. Now, Bluetooth is... Among security professionals, it's been a dirty word for a while. One of the most common pieces of advice given, advice given to attendees at the DEF CON hacker conference, this is when, when you're just with a bunch of hackers, make certain that your Bluetooth is disabled on your phone. At this year's DEF CON conference, researchers showed off the ability to use Bluetooth to identify vulnerable digital speakers that were Bluetooth speakers. Then they could hack those speakers, take them over, and they could play anything they want on those speakers. Researchers recently announced a flaw that could allow hackers to intercept and alter data sent over Bluetooth. And a hacker is able to listen in or change the content of nearby Bluetooth communications, even between devices that have previously been paired. Researchers also demonstrated how AirDrop, this is the, the Apple device for, you know, transferring pictures and things between iPhones, how AirDrop can be used by malicious actors to determine your full phone, full num your full phone number due to the way that Bluetooth low energy works. Many stores now use Bluetooth beacons to track the location of individual shoppers as you walk around the store, and then they sell that information to advertisers. So by keeping Bluetooth enabled on your phone at all times, it builds up, it, it opens you up to potential hacks or abuse. So the solution is, and what these security professionals are recommending, is that if you're not using Bluetooth, just turn it off. And then you're not vulnerable. You can easily do that. Just go to settings and then turn off Bluetooth. Okay, let's talk about buying a Chromebook. Watch for the expiration date. 
Now, it's not printed on the box, but every Chromebook has an auto-update expiration date, auto-update expiration date, which after that date, the operating system is unsupported by Google. Now, the authoritative, docu authoritative document on the subject uh, states that Google will support a, a new platform for six and a half years with auto-update supports, but after six and a half years... They get an auto-update expiration, and boom, they don't support it. Now, while six and a half years sounds reasonable, the clock starts ticking when the first platform is released. So you might buy a computer, like maybe on sale, that had been released three years before. At that point, there's only three and a half years left on the, uh, you know, on the device, and then, then it's out of support. So if, you're, if you buy a later model that uses the same hardware, you're not getting the full six and a half years. Now, after the AUE date passes, that's automatic auto-update expiration, after that date passes, there will be no more automatic software updates from Google and no technical support from Google. If you happen to buy a, a Chromebook late in a product cycle's life, you may be surprised at how soon the U, AUE arrives. Now, you can continue using your Chromebook after that date, but it's frozen in time, and uh, Google's not going to help you. Now, you can check the expiration date on your machine. It's actually, you, you can look at it. The manufacturers don't list it anywhere, but you can go to Google. You go to support.google.com slash Chrome slash A slash answers, and I'll just, if you just go to the, um, go to the printout, which, uh, go to the uh, show outline, we will we'll get that. Or you can Google Chromebook AUE dates and you'll and you'll get them and you'll list all you see all the manufacturers here and you can see when your device is going to expire some of the original asus devices that were out there by chromebooks their, their expiration dates already passed so it is a problem on an ongoing basis doc let's take a short break okay. here we'll be back in just a minute it's saturday morning you're listed tech talk radio on federal news radio part of the federal news network 1500 a.m 1035 fm hd2 1039 fm hd2 we're heard every saturday morning here at nine o'clock you can learn more about the programs at Stratford University by going to stratford.edu, also the federalnewsnetwork.com, and you can download our podcast at Podcast One and then from the Apple iTunes Store. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. In the next three 
years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University Talking Technology. You know, we've been talking on and off about the Earth's magnetic field flipping occasionally. It does it every, you know, every 20,000 years or so. And, of course, it's the magnetic field that protects us from radiation coming in from, uh, you know, from outer space, from the sun. And so we need our magnetic field to divert these, uh, these particles. And so the magnetic field is actually caused by we've got this inner core of um, molten iron that actually is magnetized. And that is actually causing the magnetic field, which is here on the Earth. And that core is rotating. And, let's, and it was interesting how they have measured the speed that this core is rotating. Let's go back in history. 1971, September 21st, a nuclear bomb exploded in Russia's Novaya Zemla Islands. The powerful blast sent waves rippling deep into the Earth. They ricocheted off the inner core... And they ultimately pinged an array of mechanical sensors some 4,000 miles away in the Montana wilderness. Mm. Three years later, that array picked up a signal when a second bomb was exploded at nearly the same spot. With this pair of nuclear explosions, they were able to look at the core. Now it turned out nobody looked at the nobody used that data for anything back then. They just they just were noting that Russia was was firing off these nuclear bombs. But recently, data scientists, seismic scientists, have gone back to that old data to calculate precisely how fast the Earth's inner core is spinning. Now, the Earth spins on its axis about once every 24 hours. We know that. That's that's the day. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah. But the inner core, is, it's roughly a moon-sized shaped ball of iron floating within an ocean of molten metal. And it's free to turn independently from the planet's large-scale spin. Now, using signals from those two nuclear explosions, Don Vidale, a seismologist at University of Southern California, now has calculated the rate that that inner ball is spinning. He, he reports that the inner core is moving inches faster than the, Earth, than the Earth's surface each day. So if you'd stand on the equator at one spot uh, the inner, and you would stand there for a year, the inner core would move about 4.8 miles away from you in a year. So in one year, the inner core would be moving around 4.8 miles. Uh, so it's moving actually faster than the Earth has done. I just thought it was interesting that they could take this old data from, a, from is, the nuclear explosion. Is this going to be a problem at some point? Well, they're trying to figure out how this influences the, uh, you know, the, the magnetic field in the air. They're just trying to understand the physics of it. Huh. And I just thought it was just an interesting... I wonder if it affects us. 
I don't know. Uh, well, I think it does affect us. The, you know, the, the magnetic field on the Earth. Now they're just mm -hmm. trying to. Now what they're trying to is how does it affect us? That's what they don't know. Now talking about nuclear explosions and nuclear things, it turns out that nuclear propulsion, thermonuclear propulsion, looks very promising. America, China, and Russia are all working to develop rockets powered by thermal nuclear propulsion. NASA chief Jim. Bridenstein says it could be a game changer for the space agency. Bridenstine gave a presentation on the importance of developing nuclear propulsion during a uh, tech meeting at the National Space Council. If NASA cracks this tech, Bridenstine told the crowd that it could revolutionize space travel by by powering high-speed Mars-bound rockets and and to uh, also rockets to outposts and settlements in outer space. And now, why this is important is that when uh, astronauts go to Mars and they're, and they're exposed to all the radiation in space, and that's extremely damaging. So if you can get there quicker and get in a protected mode, you're going to be much better off. Now, as part of its annual budget, Congress granted NASA $125 million for nuclear proposal research in May. And specifically, Congress was interested in getting faster trips to and from Mars, which could mean, you know, exposing astronauts to less radiation. You know, that'll be interesting if we can really get to Mars and stay there. It doesn't look very inhabitable, but it's certainly an interesting interesting goal for humanity. Yeah, why not? Now, how got do nothing you... else to spend our money on. I know. <laughs> that's that's true. Oh, you know, I, I walk in today, I saw for the first time a lift uh, motor scooter out, outside here. Usually I only see birds out there, but I saw a lift motor scooter. Oh, you know what? I forgot to tell you this. We did talk about this. Baltimore City finally uh, gave out their contracts for the first. They're, they're doing this stupid thing. Don't let my editorial opinion show here. They're, they're letting they're, – they have a contract now with four companies to, to provide scooters and dockless bikes uh, to Baltimore City. And the first one in town – Bird is not one of the ones who got the, uh, yeah. the contract. Yeah. Did we talk about that? We did. We, we talked did. about that. And so, yeah, Bird is Bird made a few mistakes putting out. You know, I think just dumping the, the scooters in the city and letting everybody figure it out might have been a problem. Could have been a problem. That's it for this week. Tune in next Saturday for more Tech Talk Radio. Heard on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD2, 1039 FM HD2, and in Loudoun County on 104.5 FM.